read from verse 1 to verse 20. Now Jesus was praying in a certain place. And when he had finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray. As John taught his disciples. And Jesus said to them, when you pray, say, Father, hallowed be thy name. Your kingdom come, give us each day our daily bread. And forgive our sins, for we ourselves forgive everyone who is indebted to us. And lead us not into temptation. And Jesus said to them, Which of you who has a friend will go to him at midnight and say to him, Friend, lend me three loaves, for a friend of mine has arrived on a journey, and I have nothing to set before him. And he will answer from within, Do not bother me. The door is shut, and my children are in bed. I cannot get up and give you anything. I tell you, though he will not get up and give him anything because he is his friend, Yet because of his impotence, he will give rise and give him whatever he needs. And I tell you, ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks, receives, and one who seeks, finds. And the one who knocks, it will be opened. What father among you, if his son asks for a fish, will instead, will instead of a fish give him a serpent? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the Heavenly Father give you the Holy Spirit to those who ask Him? Now he was casting out a demon that was mute. When the demon had gone out, the mute man spoke, and the people marveled. But some of them said he cast out demons by Beelzebub, the prince of demons, while others, to test him, kept seeking from him a sign from heaven. But he, knowing their thoughts, said to them, Every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and a divided household falls. And if Satan also is divided against himself, how will his kingdom stand? For you say that I cast out demons by Beelzebul. And if I cast out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore they will be your judges. But if it is by the finger of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Father, we thank you that the kingdom of God has come upon us. We thank you, Lord God, that you are here and you are in our midst, Father God. That with Jesus, your son, came both king and kingdom, Father God. And I pray, Lord, that you take and you teach us this prayer, this prayer of discipleship, this prayer that helps us enter into kingdom work and kingdom ministry for effective living, to you, O oh God, that your name would be hallowed in this world through our personal lives and our personal testimonies and our personal ministries, Father God. That you use ordinary people that have been redeemed out of the kingdom of darkness and brought into the kingdom of light of your dear Son, Father God, to proclaim the excellencies of you, Lord God. So, Father, breathe upon this text and give it light and understanding and illumination to all of us, Father. But most of all, God, let it be with the unction of the Holy Spirit that imparts life. For only the Spirit gives life. In Jesus' precious name, amen. The title of the message is The Prayer of Discipleship. 
A subtitle I would like to say is Effective Living and Effective Ministry, because we have both those concepts within this prayer. Effective Ministry, Effective Living by the Power of the Holy Spirit. Through Luke's account of the Lord's Prayer and the parable and exhortation that go with it, we see something tied together here. We see that the need for effective ministry in the kingdom of God and effective living as subjects to the king himself that's redeemed sin is like us. It is all here through the power of the Holy Spirit. We're going to find out that effective ministry and effective living is by those disciples that ask and they seek and they knock and they continually knock and how God will give them the Holy Spirit. As he says, he's not uh, uh, a shy God. He's not a cheap God. He wants us to be effective in the ministry. He wants us to be effective in our witness of Christ. He wants to be as, as effective over temptation, over the fear of man, over Satan's uh, schemes. He wants us to rise above that, but he knows something. Something as Christians we forget sometimes. We need to be totally Dependent on God. How foolish of us at times to think we can live a moment without dependence on God. If we look at the weakest moments in our Christian life, I think we all have to agree at those moments we're really not that prayed up and we're really not that close to God. And, and that is when our flank is open and that's when we can be attacked and that's when we are at our worst. Because we're far away. Those aren't my words. I believe Jesus said, if you don't abide in me, and I abide in you, you can do nothing apart from me. And we know that abiding is not church attendance, though it's part of abiding. Abiding is a personal act of the will to worship God and to follow Christ and pick up our cross. We're going to look at those kind of things, but as we go through this text... I want to sort of wrestle this uh, Lord's Prayer out of the cultural understanding and uh, indifference this prayer probably has undertaken because many people might say it and even memorize it, but I think few people really have entered into what Jesus is really talking about over here. Unless you've studied it out, uh, I want to get a fresh perspective on what I believe Christ is saying here and to bring it to our attention, and to evaluate our own understanding of the kingdom of God. And that's a sort of mild challenge to the saints, to challenge all of us in our understanding of the kingdom of God. Where am I in the kingdom of God? Am I a daily bread type of guy, or am I truly seeking thy kingdom come? As a matter of fact, do I even care about the kingdom? Do I even know what the kingdom is? Uh, so I'm going to challenge everybody with the, the text We'll be going this over at least two to three, four weeks as we go through these 20 verses of Scripture and we find out about what is thy kingdom come. And as a Christian, as a ministry, are we involved in the coming of the kingdom of God? Where is this prayer in our lives as it was in Christ's life? Because this is really Jesus' prayer. At least most of it. He didn't have to say, forgive my sins. <laughs> He's the forgiver of sins. But we'll get into this and we'll break this down over the next several weeks. 
Let me explain something about the prayer, the parable, and the exhortation that goes with it. When he says, thy kingdom come, it's a framework of everything the New Testament says about the kingdom of God. Even specifically Luke's writing in Luke and the book of Acts. And we're going to get into that as we go along this framework. But for most commentators, most people trying to think through this text, they'll say, well, the disciples had an understanding of the kingdom of God when the Messiah was going to come and perfect righteousness was going to bring birth to the earth. And we have Old Testament texts that say something like this, the lion and the lamb will what? They'll lay down together and be shepherded by a child. And the warriors of the earth will take their swords and they'll beat them into plowshares. And one day we will have a perfect righteousness on this earth and Messiah will come and we will understand these kind of things. But in the interim, the kingdom of God is here. While everybody's waiting for the ultimate consummation of the kingdom, the kingdom has arrived. Jesus says to the Pharisees, don't think that the kingdom of God is going to come with signs to be observed. He's over there in the wilderness, or he's out over there. He says, the kingdom of God is in your midst. And why would he say that? For wherever the king is, there is the kingdom. Jesus is the king. We have to understand that the kingdom is here. And it is progressive. And it will have a consummation. And as Pastor John said before, for us, it's Maranatha. Come Lord Jesus. That sums up everything when Christ comes to set up his earthly reign and his righteous reign. And we have a parable here. It's an interesting parable. Most of us know it. A friend comes in midnight hour, asks another friend to feed him, and, you know, we got this little tension resolution going on. What's going to happen? The friend doesn't want to get up. The door is locked. The family's asleep. It's late at night. I don't want to disturb the family, but because of his persistence in prayer and his shameless boldness, because he needs food for his friend, he continues to knock, he continues to ask, and he continues to seek, and the friend... Well, he gets worn down, and he blesses him with the food, and we just have the contrast that, isn't your heavenly father much greater than that? Surely, if you're asking for uh, bread, a father would not give his child uh, a snake or a scorpion. Of course not. And you ask yourself, and I ask myself, well, why does Jesus have to tell his disciples that? It's because they didn't know it. They're praying for thy kingdom to come. When Jesus is gone, it's going to be their job that the kingdom come. Read the book of Acts. He does a pretty good job. And they have to know that God is a gracious God that does give the gifts that are needed for effective ministry. And just because God calls someone to be a pastor, or God calls someone to be a worship leader, or God calls someone to be an evangelist, or God calls someone to be an apostle, or God calls someone to be a prophet, it's just because the calling doesn't mean you're going to have effective anointing on your life. It still needs to be prayed for, asked for, sought for, and knocked for. Prayer in the book of Luke is mentioned 21 times, as opposed to Matthew has it 17 times, Mark has it Uh, 13 times, and Luke writes in Acts 25 times he talks about prayer. In his two books he talks about it 46 times. You can't go through the book of Acts or the book of Luke without seeing him constantly 
mention prayer. And we're going to go into this a little bit. But it is so important for us to understand this concept that the kingdom, for the king to be hallowed in this world, that means to be honored and revered through our lives, we need to be a truly praying people. There is no absolute, no substitute for a lack of a prayerful life. There is nothing except one other choice. Pray so you don't fall into temptation. You pray, you're ahead of the game. We're not praying as a ministry. We're not praying as individuals. I'm not abiding with Christ, with my heart's desires, my heart's motives. We will be weak. You and I will be weak. I read to verse 20 for a reason. And we're going to pick this up. In verse 2, we, we pray in the Lord's Prayer. What do we pray? Thy kingdom come. In verse 20, after he cast out the demon with the finger of God, what did he say? The kingdom of God has come. He's teaching a principle to his disciples about asking and seeking and knocking on heaven's door to be effective in life and effective in ministry. When Jesus did what he did, it says in Luke chapter 4, after being tempted for 40 days by Satan, that he came out in the power of the Spirit. We have to know something. Jesus Christ is the anointed God-man. He did everything with total reliance and dependence on the Father and the Spirit. He didn't come and say, well, I'm God and I'm going to take over. He came as a suffering servant, as Paul teaches us, that he, he emptied himself of his divinity. He could have used it. He never ceased to be God for one moment, but he depended on God. He depended on the Spirit of God at all times. And he's showing the disciples and he's showing us today that effective ministry is only by a close, close abiding relationship with God in truth and in prayer, in dependence and reliance on him. And we're going to get into this as we go through this prayer. But I'm laying a groundwork because the truth of the matter is we're human and though we're Filled with the Spirit of God and with the temple of God, we can get weak. Can't we get weak, saints? And doesn't the Bible teach us because we can get weak, don't neglect the fellowship with the saints so we can stir each other up to faith and good works and love? Don't, isn't that why we get together? To strengthen us? Isn't church a, a balancing act, a sort of uh, a refreshing, a reviving? Uh, uh, getting our equilibrium back to get right with God and to feel strong and to worship God and to encourage one another. And then, isn't that what we do? But familiarity sometimes can breed not just contempt but confusion. And we can sort of miss what Jesus is really teaching us about kingdom living through this prayer. Our focus on the next week will be to rediscover the power of of this prayer and what Jesus is implying. And that's what the Lord's Prayer is. It's, it's a model prayer. 
and its, 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 its implications are deep and vast. And we all have to search our heart, find out, is this prayer living in our life? Maybe it was alive at one time, it's not alive now. Prayerfully, God will revive it in our hearts. I want to keep an eye on how these four verses and the teachings attached to us usher not just the disciples, but us into a whole new world. These men had no idea what it meant to follow Christ at all. All they know is that they called, they heard something in their heart, come follow me. They dropped their fishing nets. They, got, they dropped their, their ledges, the tax collector. The zealot dropped his sword. Uh, and, they, and, and they followed, they followed this man who offered them nothing. The birds have a nest. And the foxes have holes, but the Son of Man has nothing. If you're going to follow me, you have to deny everything. Pick up your cross and follow me. That is not something you really want to sign up for. But whether you know it or not, that's what you signed up for. <laughs> or I should say, that's what you've been enlisted into, because the kingdom of God is not a voluntary thing. You didn't sign up. God enlisted you. He says, come on, I'm calling you into the kingdom today. Amen. And praise God. No one comes unless he draws us. Some of the elements we're going to be looking at is the importance of prayer. We'll look at that today. God, our Father, I'll be speaking about that next week. Corporate prayer, I'll be speaking about that today. God's kingdom, not ours. God's daily bread, not our American lifestyles. God's forgiveness and our forgiving. God's empowerment over our many weaknesses. God's empowerment over his kingdom's real enemy, and that is Satan. We'll be speaking about all these concepts there and we'll see where we are. The importance of prayer. What is the cry of your newborn soul? What is that cry? As I mentioned, how, how important prayer is to the writer Luke, the historian, theologian Luke, and how important it is to Christ, how important it is to Apostle Paul. It, it's interesting in the 21 times in Luke where it comes up, most of the times it comes up in the crucial, crucial times. And I want to go through some of these times. And, and you take a look at this. In chapter 1, verses 9 and 10, it says this. According to the custom of the priesthood, Zechariah was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And the whole multitude of the people were praying outside that hour of incense. You see, prayer and the promise of the forerunner are put very close together. The kingdom of God is on an advance now. The kingdom of God at first was hidden in Mary's womb. Then it was hidden in Mary's house. But we're going to watch out the baptism. The next one, he's revealed to everybody. In chapter 3, verse 21, it says, Now when all the people were baptized, and when Jesus also had been baptized, and now he's praying, the heavens were opened, the Holy Spirit descends in bodily form like a dove, and a voice from heaven you are my beloved son, and whom I am well pleased. We see the triune God represented. This is the inauguration of the kingdom of God. This is the open revealing that Christ the King, the Messiah of Israel has come. The only thing, as he weeps later in this book, they missed the time of their visitation. But yet, the King is here. 5.15 says this. But now even more, 
the report about him went abroad, and great crowds gathered to hear him. Is this a minister's dream? And to be healed of all their infirmities. But, now listen to this word. But he would withdraw to desolate places and pray. It doesn't say he withdrew and prayed. The writer Luke is telling us how many times he withdrew. He constantly withdrew to constantly pray as the crowds constantly sought him. Success or overwork can ruin your relationship with God and ruin your relationship with people. Jesus knew this. And this is a crucial time to stay close to God. Not a time to be comfortable and hear the accolades of people and say, wow, this is going pretty good. Man, the demons are subject to me. Infirmity is subject to me. The crowds are seeking me. He says, no, the most important thing is what he taught his disciples. Remember when he taught his disciples when the 70 came back and said, the demons are subject to us? And he said, well, don't rejoice that the demons are subject to you in my name. Don't rejoice about your effective ministry. Rejoice that your name is written in the Lamb's book of life. Rejoice you're saved. Rejoice you're born again. Rejoice that your sins are forgiven. Yes. That's where real rejoicing comes from. But we have something here. We have at a crucial time when the crowds are stampeding him. He makes time for prayer. 6.12 In these days he went out to a mountain and prayed. And all night he continued in prayer to God. And when day came, he called his disciples and chose from them twelve whom he named apostles. Raising kingdom leaders through prayer. Leaders just don't come. You just don't give someone opportunity. You just don't give anybody the pulpit. You just don't give anybody authority. It takes deep prayer. This is a crucial time. He's raising up 12 men that are going to take over for him. He sought God on that. 9.18 Now it happened that he was praying alone. The disciples were with him. And he asked them, Who do the crowds say that I am? Revelation about the king of the kingdom needs to be sought in prayer. Sought in prayer. Jesus was praying when his disciples were out there. And we're going to see here in chapter in the same chapter, verses 27 to 29, he goes on to say this, But I tell you truly, there will be some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. Now about eight days later, after the saying, he took with him Peter and John and James, and he went up to a mountain to pray. And there he is again. And as he was praying, the appearance of his face was altered, and his clothing became dazzling white. We notice this as the, the transfiguration, that they caught a glimpse of the deity of Christ. How many would like to have a glimpse of the deity of Christ? Honestly. People are scared to raise their hands. You better be. You better be. We got 66 books that point to the revelation of the glory of Jesus Christ. 
And if you ask, and you seek, and you knock, and you pray, you could rest assured there's a glorified Christ that's willing, able, and desiring to reveal himself to your heart. I can tell you that now. And give you a glimpse of his glory. Our text tonight in chapter 11. Now Jesus was praying in a certain place. And when he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray. What he's saying is, Lord, teach us to pray also, as John taught his disciples. Prayer can be contagious, and it should be contagious. When you hear a man like Christ pray, when you hear the apostles pray, when you hear men and women that know God and love God and they pray, they will touch your heart. It is contagious, and it ought to be contagious. Chapter 18. One and two, and he told them a parable to the effect that you want always to pray and not lose heart. Persistent prayer. We're going to put this all together as the weeks go on. 22, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you, that he might sift you as we, but I have prayed for you. Isn't it nice to know that Jesus is praying for us? Romans 8 teaches us he still does it. And that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. Preservation through prayer. Do you ever think that your prayers really do affect other people's lives? Do you really know that? Okay. In the last one, chapter 22, verse 40. And when he came to the place, he said to them, Pray that you may not enter into temptation. Protective prayer. Clearly, for Luke, prayer was seen as a vital and necessary part of the Christian life, both individually and corporately, both to live effectively and to minister effectively. That prayer and somehow the power of the Holy Spirit really do converge. Prayer and the power of the Holy Spirit really do converge. Let me say it again. Prayer and the power of the Holy Spirit really do converge on a saint, on a disciple of Christ, when they seek and they're asking and there's knocking. John 15, you know the scripture, you abide in me, I abide in you, for apart from me you can do no good thing. He says, and ask whatever you will and it will be done. He is not talking about a car. He is not talking about a home. He is not talking about any kind of wealth. Because the next verse of Scripture goes on to teach us, it is by this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit in the ministry and your life. That's how God is hallowed be thy name. The closer you are to Christ, the more you want to be fruitful in the kingdom of God. It's a natural byproduct. We see in these examples that prayer really is part of the engine to effective ministry and effective living. Luke 11, where the Lord's Prayer is found, if you understand the structure of Luke, probably most people don't, but let me explain it to you. The first several chapters talks about uh, uh, the infancy of Christ. From chapter 4 to chapter 9, it talks about the ministry of Christ in Galilee. 
He was shown his hometown, I am the Messiah. As he says when he preached in the, in the, in the synagogue at Capernaum, he says, the spirit of the Lord is upon me to set the prisoners free, to open up the eyes of the blind. They knew what he meant. They knew he was saying, I'm Messiah. And he proved it as he walked in the power in Galilee. But now, chapter 9 to chapter 19 is different. It's all about discipleship. All ten chapters about Jesus. There's only three other miracles that take place. There's the healing of a woman for 18 years. She was bent over. There was a man who had dropsy. Uh, and another man was healed uh, in the synagogue. I think it was a blind man in chapter 19. Forgive me about it. But understand something. It's all teaching in parables. It's all teaching on how to be a disciple. The 12th chapter is one of the clearest disciple teaching chapters in all the Bible. If you don't pick up your cross, if you love your father, and if you love your mother, if you love your sister or your brothers more than me, you can have no part of me. That is radical teaching. But of course, he's just making a point. Just don't love God. Don't love anything more than God. Simple. That's all. But he used a heightened awareness of don't even love family more than God. Doesn't mean don't love your family. You want to love your family? Love God more, and you'll love your family like you never did. Matter of fact, you'll love your neighbor like you never did. It's important to understand that because that's why I put as our title the prayer of discipleship. I have a question. Can we possibly survive without prayer? Let's think about that. Does that mean we have to have some kind of eloquent prayer life? Does it have to be saturated with theological words and concepts? Do we have to quote scripture after scripture after scripture? Or can we just say, God, help me. Help me, the weak saint. God, give me grace. I know I need you in my life. I know I need daily bread. I know I'm weak without you. I know I fail without you. And I know when I pray and I love you and I worship you, I feel so close to you that I really can do anything and be fruitful for you. That works. Works, isn't it? Work for David. Before we get into this text, I haven't begun. I want to close our eyes and pray like a community. Father, we come before you, Lord God, and we recognize just how important prayer is to you. How your whole word screams at us lovingly, seek me in prayer, knock in prayer, ask in prayer, pray without ceasing, persevere in prayer, that you are a gracious God, that you answer us. And it's in this process of seeking, asking, and knocking, and persevering through the hard times over prolonged decades that somehow we're changed into the image of Christ, Lord. Help us in our prayer life, Father God. Let us see the importance of prayer, not just tonight, but every day of our life, Father. Bless this teaching, Father God. Bless these messages, Father, on the kingdom of God, on prayer, and on the power of the Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name, I pray. Amen. Let's go to our text. The first thing they asked him was, teach us how to pray. Like John the, John the Baptist taught his disciples how to pray. Understand there's a, a Jewish custom going on over here. 
teaches, taught the disciples how to pray. John the Baptist took it upon himself to take his disciples aside and to teach them the important things about life and God. And pray accordingly. The Pharisees also did this. When Jesus, when the disciples saw Jesus, they saw something they'd never seen before. They heard the long-winded prayers of the Pharisees. Jesus rebuked them on more than one occasion, and they liked to stand on the street corner with their long prayers so they could be seen why? By men. And be praised by men. Jesus said they have their reward. They saw the long-winded prayers of the religious community. Now a man is coming along, they hear him pray, and when they say, teach us to pray, what they're saying, we see something different about you. Teach us to pray like you pray. There is something going on in your heart, in your mind, in your desires that I've never heard before. These aren't ritualistic. I feel like, I feel like you're speaking to the Father. Teach us to pray the way you pray. There's no methodology in prayer. Prayer is a language of the heart. To teach how to pray what Jesus is teaching is, I'm going to write, I'll tell you what, really means everything to me, and I'll give it to you in a framework. God needs to be honored above all things. Life is about his kingdom, not about our personal needs. If you seek God and his kingdom and his righteousness, all these other things will be added on to you. That's daily bread. Not American lifestyles. Daily bread. Don't let lifestyle get in the way of daily bread and honoring God. That's what he's saying. And while you're at it, since your only reason you're in the kingdom is because I've forgiven you, forgive one another. It's a kingdom of forgiveness, not resentments. If it's going to work, forgive one another. Oh, while you're at it, you're very weak. So pray that you'll fall into temptation. And that God will not lead you into temptation because you're never going to make it in the kingdom of God without prayer in your life. But Jesus, don't worry, the Holy Spirit's coming. And when he touches your heart, he'll bring everything into remembrance that I told you. You hang on there. Pray like Jesus. Pray, teach us to pray like you pray. Understand something, prayer reveals so much about a person, doesn't it? Listen, when I'm a Christian a long time, you listen to people pray, you can tell the tension, the struggles, the hopes, the needs, the desires, the hunger that's in a person through their prayer. You can see and hear where a person is in their life, what means most to a person the way they pray. You can understand their theology. You understand the schools they went to. You can hear it, the way a person prays. It's such a transparent revelation of themselves when someone prays. When you're around someone consistently, I'm not talking about someone once, they, they lived with Christ for three years. They heard him pray on numerous, numerous, numerous occasions. They saw the great contrast between him and the Pharisees. They saw what he was about. Prayer is a revelation of a person, or prayer is a revelation of a group. You go to a church long enough and you hear people pray, you'll understand what they're about. Is it about the glory of God through the gospel? Or is it about God doing things and spiritual activity and signs and wonders and everybody's got to be healed and everybody's got to be blessed and everybody's got to be rich? Then if you hear that week in and week out, that's what they're about. Prayer reveals the theology 
the understanding, the longings of a person or a ministry's heart. Prayer is vital. But a question needs to be asked. When people ask questions, questions being asked to a teacher, I've taught not just the Bible, I've taught martial arts, I've taught physical fitness for almost 25 years. I know when a student is asking me something and where that's coming from. Questions are good. Questions are healthy. People that ask a lot of questions, if they're sincere, they're eventually going to give a lot of answers to other people. Inquiry is a great thing. And this is a wonderful question that his disciples ask him, and it's music to Christ's ears. Teach us how to pray. Teach us to be like you. Teach us to honor God the way you honor God. Daddy, I want to be like you. I want to be a doctor. Daddy, I I want to be a lawyer. I want to be like you. What father doesn't want to hear a son say, Dad, I want to be like you. Maybe not do what you do, but I want to be like you. I see how kind you are to mommy. I see how good you are to people. I want to be like you. Questions are revelation. It's an indicator of spiritual life and growth. But there's something else. A lack of questions is very concerning to a teacher. When someone doesn't ask, you're following Jesus Christ. How can you not ask questions? How can you hear a text like, leave everything, or you can have no part with me? How does that not raise a question in your heart? Lack of questions can sometimes point to reluctance in a person, or avoidance, or you know, uh, being removed Asking questions doesn't spare Jesus. He welcomes you. It's a revelation of who we are. He says, when you pray. And this is what I want to spend a moment on. Because the word is not individual. It's a corporate word. It's plural. He says, when you all gather. It's a you all. When you all gather corporately. He's addressing the corporate dimension of prayer. I want everybody to hear this. Jesus expects us to pray as a group for the coming of the kingdom of God. We turn prayer into our own private monopoly with God where he's going to govern our unmanageable lives. Govern my unmanageable life. Govern my unmanageable finances, my unmanageable health, my unmanageable social uh, situation, domestic situation, well, just manage it, Jesus. But it's not. We have to get together and put everything aside, which we do on Thursday night. It, of course, we have concerns and we pray over concerns, but it's leaving Brian Martin and my world behind and entering in just to the kingdom of God and intercede the way Jesus says so the kingdom of God will come. And keep coming. There's something interesting here about this. Jesus expects us to pray as a community. And there's a reason. Praying for the kingdom of God is burdensome. Did you hear that? 
Praying for the kingdom of God is hard work. You're praying to a God that looks like at some times he doesn't even care what you're saying. It is a lot of work. That's why Jesus teaches us about the persistence of prayer. God will not wait long over his elect. And we pray, and we pray, and we seek, and it's a burden, and it's a burden. You want to know something? Burdens are so much more manageable when you share it with other people. When many people are sharing the burden of the kingdom of God, and it's not left to a couple of people, understand something, it's manageable. When you have two people trying to hold down the fort, when you have 40, 50, 100 people and they don't want to pray, it's burdensome. It wears a man down. But when people come together and they pray and they share the burden, there's hope and there's fulfillment. Corporate prayer is not a matter of do we want to. It is expected of every Christian. Every Christian church should offer to the congregation the opportunity to just enter into the kingdom of God and pray for the kingdom to come. That's it. That is it. We all take, we all absorb the burden. We all carry the burden. We all manage the burden of the coming of the kingdom of God in power. We all ask. We all seek. Because when it comes, we're all blessed. God leaves no one out at all. The importance of praying together as a family. I'm just going to close with some application with questions. That's all. What do you do and how do you feel when you discover that the kingdom of God might not be that important to us right now? How does that feel? But what goes through our spirit when you hear something about the Lord's Prayer and the importance of praying thy kingdom come and that Christ would be glorified and God would be glorified through our life, through our ministry? How does it feel when you realize, you know, that's not really operating in my prayer life? Well, how may I know? Is church a priority to us? Is learning and praying a priority to us? People being saved out of darkness. Remember where you were when you got saved? Think about it. Think about the hope you have in your life now. Think about all the people that don't have that. We sit next to people at work, in our neighborhoods, our friends. How do we feel about people who are not saved? That's an indicator of where your heart is out with the kingdom of God. This kingdom of God prayer stuff, is it only for those who are called to it? Yes. Everybody's called. It's not the pastor's job. 
when you were brought out of darkness into the light, you were purchased, not with silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Jesus Christ. You qualify for praying for the kingdom of God. Individually and corporately, we are called the temple of the Holy Spirit in 1 Corinthians 6 and 7. It is important for us, all of us, to recognize that corporate prayer has nothing to do with the leadership of the church. It has everything to do with anyone who is a Christian. What are some of the elements? And again, it's self-reflection. This is application through self-reflection, okay? What are some of the elements of your private prayer life? Take a moment now. When you pray, what are some of the elements? Can you identify some kingdom concerns in there? Is there a sense of thy kingdom come? That Christ would be glorified our personal lives and the ministries we belong to would be effective and prosperous? Is that part of our prayer life? Are there kingdom concerns in our prayer life? That's an indicator of how much the kingdom of God means to us. If not, then why not? Is it a lack of biblical preaching? Is it total disregard for God? Is it just indifference? Or are we drowning in self-concern? What? If the kingdom of God is not really a dynamic and the elements aren't really in my personal prayer life, then why is that? Well, what's missing? Where do I go wrong? Then possibly we've misunderstood or misapplied the part of the prayer that says, lead us not into temptation. We have this sort of feeling that temptation just has to do with morality. Am I right? When you hear about don't fall into temptation, what, what, what do you think about? Don't get drunk, don't womanize, don't cuss, don't steal, don't do this moralizing. Yeah, of course, God doesn't want us to do that. But when Jesus says, pray that you don't fall into temptation, do you know when he said that? Do you know they all failed that? Because when Judas came with the prison guards, what did they all do? They fled. They failed. Temptation doesn't have to do with just failing morally. Temptation is when I don't stand up for Jesus Christ in the marketplace. I'm failing. I've fallen into temptation. And I'm not standing up for the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords because I'm fearful of what man might think of me. When the Judas has come with the Roman gods of my life, do I kowtow and run away? Temptation is denying Christ. Temptation is uh, uh, being weak in faith. Temptation is so many things that we, can, we will do if we're not prayerful people. So my heart and my concern over this series of teachings on the Lord's Prayer is to really see where we are with the kingdom. Now let me close with this last thought. It's good news. Who wants to hear good news? Are you sure? If you ask, and you seek, and you knock, God's not going to give you a snake. Now you know why Jesus taught that power. Because by nature, we are weak. 
We are indifferent. We are selfish. We're prone to self-concern. By nature, that's who you and I are. Thank Adam for that. But because of Christ and his grace and his patience always abounding in our life, and he's always teaching us, Brian, just keep asking, keep seeking, keep knocking, but I failed. Get up, keep asking, keep knocking. But I, don't worry, get to the 18th chapter and I'll give you the, the prayer of the persistent widow so you do not grow weary and tired and well-being. Are you with me? Who needs to know that God is still calling us and asking us to seek him and knock? Isn't God still gracious? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for every good and perfect gift, Father. I thank you that you're a God that constantly woos us, Father God. You woo us. You, you, you want us, but you woo us. And you say, just come and ask. Come and seek. Come and knock. Those who wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall walk and not grow weary. They shall run and not grow weak. Father God, we wait upon you in our personal lives, God. I pray, God, for myself, this ministry, and everybody who's part of it, that the kingdom of God becomes so much more important to them than it ever was before at this time in our personal lives. In Jesus' name.